In a mostly ceremonial rule, the new constitution abolished the British Parliament's remnants of influence over Canada. Canada is now a nation of over 36 million people, where over 20% speak French as a first language, and has the 10th largest economy in the world. The province of Quebec has maintained a strong French influence over the centuries, and has on two occasions voted in referendums to decide whether Quebec should proclaim national sovereignty and become an independent country. In 1995, it very nearly did not pass, with secession still being an issue till this day. This has been Epimetheus. Let me know what you think down in the comments. What Canadian province is your favorite to visit or live in? Don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell icon to get notifications every time I make a new video. And big thanks to my Thank you so much for watching till the end of the video. What is killing the moon? How can the moon die though? Everything does, sooner or later. Can we save it? Depends what's killing it. Where are the other three? Is it those germ things then? Are they like cockroaches? Is it? Is it an infestation? Is it? Well, I've only seen one of them. It would take an awful lot more to cause the moon to put on 1.3 billion tons. That makes two. Sunlight. Sunlight? Like the germs. My nan says it's the best disinfectant there is. Shine your light down there. Don't forget to click below to subscribe to the official Doctor Who YouTube channel.
100 years. From the mid-1800s until the Second World War, they travelled the world in search of people. Human beings they classified as exotic animals to be exhibited in human zoos. These exhibitions were a worldwide phenomenon. Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, some 35,000 human beings were exhibited to one and a half billion other human visitors. Human beings exhibited by other human beings. In zoos and circuses, theatres and anatomy rooms, at colonial exhibitions and world fairs. These men and women were placed on the same level as animals. This was extremely disturbing. At the same time, there was a degree of conditioning which was very difficult to escape from. Children, women and men were put on display in order to support a hierarchy of races and to justify worldwide colonization. It was so successful because people came to see the so-called savages from faraway lands, whose exoticism had long fascinated them. Here, for the first time, they could be marveled at in the flesh. They were supposed to depict cannibals, although none of them actually were cannibals. It was all just theatre. Thanks to human zoos, racism became accepted and commonplace. Visitors flocked to see the ever more terrifying savages, which were marketed accordingly. Tambo, an Aborigine from Australia, Otto Benga, a Pygmy from Congo, Marius Kalui, a Kanak from New Caledonia, and Moniko Kakaimi from Guyana. They represent many thousands of people who were exhibited, but whose names history has forgotten. Remembering is not about attaching blame to people. Remembering is, above all, about understanding what happened and understanding the influence these actions have had on all of us. were reserved for the elite. As early as the 16th century, Europeans imported strange savages from far-flung lands for the enjoyment of rich aristocrats at royal courts. But by the beginning of the 19th century, this fashion had spread to fairs, pubs and theatres, thereby reaching a wider audience. States, the king of human exhibitions was Phineas Taylor Barnum. From as early as 1841, his famous freak shows had attracted huge crowds of people and had earned him a fortune. He wanted to put the strangest people in the world on stage. Dwarves, mermaids, conjoined twins, a bearded lady, a giant. They were all assembled in a gallery of the bazaar, 
where visitors could catch a glimpse of an amazing and fantastic world. Hollywood didn't yet exist, but Barnum was responsible for establishing a fascination for the strange. Barnum revolutionized the American circus when he created the greatest show on earth, a huge traveling circus with 5,000 seats. This was also where he presented his packages to the public. He wrote to more than 100 American commercial agencies and consulates throughout the world, asking them to send him real wild savages in order to increase his worldwide troop of what he called freaks. The Irishman Robert Cunningham was able to satisfy Barnum's wishes. When he heard about Barnum's letter in 1883, he was in Australia, in North Queensland, home to the Aborigines, the country's indigenous people who had been oppressed by British settlers since the 18th century. Deprived of their most basic rights, victims of violence and racial segregation, they were considered little more than a part of the fauna and flora. Queensland was a state then, it was a colony. This was a turning point for Aboriginal people who had been living here for thousands and thousands of years and countless generations because their land was being taken by Europeans. Aborigines were forced to live in villages called black camps. Coming home met Kukamanbura, a young Aborigine man who he renamed Tambo. Tambo's companions were also given new names. Toby, Jenny, and their son, Toby Jr. Billy, Susie, Jimmy, and Bob. The prevailing pseudo-scientific ideology ranked Aborigines the lowest amongst the hierarchy of human races, making them highly sought after for human and folk shows. They were considered unsuited to modern life and facing extinction. I do know that not long after Cunningham got them on the boat from Townsville, they wanted to go back to their community. They wanted to go home. We know that the people was not aware of um, what they were getting themselves involved with. Cunningham actually had to remove all their clothes so they wouldn't run away. When they got into Sydney, two people actually still escaped. One of them actually stabbed a policeman. The whole matter ended up before the court. The judge still released the two escapees into the care of Cunningham through a bond. In the wake of this upset, the group hastily boarded a ship in Sydney, and after a long crossing, they joined the greatest show on earth in New York. Barnum had prepared his new acquisitions to be the highlight of his show. He created a backstory for each of them and gave them roles to play. Cower before Billy the Hunter and his terrifying scars succumb to the charms of Susie, Princess of Queensland. Experience the thrill as fierce warrior Tambo performs his sensational war dance. The tour 
traveled across America at breakneck speed. The troops' appearance in more than 130 American and Canadian cities pushed them to exhaustion. While Barnum and Cunningham made a fortune. In 1884, one year after arriving in America and having travelled the whole country, Tambo fell ill and died while still on tour. Cunningham had the body mummified and sold his remains to a fairground museum in Cleveland. More deaths followed in quick succession, however, the show went on. Despite these losses, Cunningham knew his troop could conquer Europe. He shipped them to London, the capital of human zoos. In London, they performed nightly at the Crystal Palace, which was constructed in 1851 for the Great Exhibition. I'm not sure whether the visitors at that time had enough distance to say to themselves, this is a business. It's not really real, but just acting. I don't think that the distance was there, and that's the dangerous thing. After England, the Aborigines set out on an extensive tour through the old world theatres and music halls. Pascal's Pomotopen in Berlin, the Arcadia in St. Petersburg, the Polybergere in Paris, where the last survivors were photographed. Jenny and Toby Jr., who had both contract tuberculosis. The fate of Billy, Tambo's companion, is unknown. His eyes are very, uh, very sad. I just, just wondered where he is, just looking at him now. He's so cute. is a uh, crisp film, uh, low, low, low steam, smoky steam, uh, going overseas into another world, you know, he's being stripped of his powers in the sense of uh, he's been humiliated because he's dominated by somebody else who told him what to do. In our society, he was respected as a woman, but now he's not. When you see that. With the support of the Australian government, Granddad Walter has brought home the mortal remains of his ancestor Tambo, so that he can finally rest in peace on Palm Island among his people. Tambo's mummified body had been found in 1993 in the United States in the basement of a funeral home in Cleveland, Ohio. I feel strong because of uh, his battles and his country. I feel his spirit, his spirit's back on and he's free.
this story needs to be taught uh, purely because the mistakes of the past that revisit us in the future. when exoticism was all the rage, show organisers were not the only ones to grasp the interest that the exhibitions aroused. The colonial powers saw a ready opportunity to introduce to their citizens both their claims as well as the validity of their imperialist policies. To the end of the 19th century, a renewed impulse to colonise developed in the West that prompted the European powers, but also the US and Japan, to freely divide among themselves those territories still available. In particular, Africa. The world was gradually appropriated by those who saw themselves as uniquely civilized. At the same time, human zoos proliferated to justify colonial domination of the world. Colonized people have to accept that, share, and promote their own myth. And that is exactly what happened in colonial times. This is not only in Africa, but also in Japan and elsewhere. In order for the savage to exist, those who are presumed to be savages must accept that, that it is indeed exactly what they are. At the beginning of the 1890s, the role of the human zoos was shifting in response to political objectives which were masterly staged and orchestrated. Monaco's story is that of a survivor. After months of humiliation, she was able to return to her village and her people. A hundred years later, her descendants recalled the suffering of the exhibited people and shed light on their trauma. Moliko and her companions belong to the Pelini people, natives of Guyana. In 1882, Moliko, together with other people in her village, left the banks of the Moroni River in Guyana, accompanied by the sound of drums. She and 32 others had volunteered to undertake the journey to Europe. Les the old people told us that there was a big party before departure. We still remember the mast and that the ship gradually disappeared over the horizon. Until then we could still see what was happening. When the ship was being on the horizon, there was silence. The French explorer, Francois Laveau, sent by the military for colonies, 
was able to convince the Kalinia to head off into the unknown. He offered them money and beautiful sights and vouched that they would be well treated. Avec Morikos, travel companions were men, women, and children who came voluntarily, but were locked up in cages. They were supposed to make pottery in Paris and build dugouts. Instead, they were forced to act as savages for the audience and were doubly humiliated in the process. They were not accepted for who they were, and they quickly realized that they are indeed regarded as savages. Subjected to constant humiliation, the Kalina, like all other people exhibited at the time, was subjected to racial scientific studies. The exhibition of the Kalina was a great success. The public flocked to the Jardin d'Acclimatation. The Kalinia embodied to perfection what human savages were meant to be like. The winter, disease and exhaustion rapidly caused the deaths of some members of the troupe in Paris. The show continued nonetheless. Of the original 32 Kalinia who travelled to France, only 10 returned to their village. Molly was one of them. L'histoire des Kalinia, this part of the Kalinia history, is very distressing because the people could not mourn their loss. Grief is something very important for the Kalinia people, and even a century later, it is still impossible to mourn. descendants of Monaco. They have never seen these photos of Monaco and her fellow companions of misfortune taken by Roland Bonaparte. Mm -hmm. That's Monaco. That was your great-grandmother's first name. She was called Monaco. We don't know who the other one was. She said they were afraid when they reached France. That's what she said when she told me what happened. I feel sorry for them back then. I feel sad. Then? When I look at these photos. My father never talked about his grandmother leaving. I've never seen these photos. But I can look at them now. Because you This unspoken trauma is something that descendants still struggle with today. I don't think it was right. What was the point? The way the white people made them do all this nonsense? What did they want with them? 
Such behavior is mistreatment. If a white man takes them away, he must treat them properly. Such treatment was simply not correct. They wanted to force their will on a Kalyan. But maybe they didn't obey. Maybe that's what happened. Nobody really knows what happened back then. There is no textbook or course about indigenous history. And to date, no historian has dealt with this aspect. And yet it is part of our identity. And also a facet of history of France. That's why we are interested in it today. of the Kalinia was an important first step towards a state exploitation of the colonized people for propaganda purposes. The Ministry of Colonies took control of human exhibitions. All private shows now needed its authorization. The production spread across the Atlantic. America was now also getting involved. Of all the people's exhibited, one stood out in terms of popularity. Six diminutive Africans attracted everyone's attention. They were backward from the Belgian Congo. The St. Louis Anthropology Department had financed an African expedition led by the explorer Samuel Werner to bring them to be presented exclusively at the exhibition. Otterbenga was 1 meter 41 in height. This young man with the enigmatic smile was soon to become the most popular among them. Samuel Werner was commissioned explicitly to bring back pygmies because it was believed uh, at that time that they were the least civilized people on the planet. And so uh, the whole point of the St. Louis World's Fair was to map human progress from the lowest to the highest with the pygmies said to represent the lowest form of humanity. Since 1885, the Congo had been the property of the Belgian King Leopold II. His authority was unchallenged and his rule was particularly violent and harsh. Acts of brutality were commonplace. Samuel Vernon himself said how he captured the pygmies. He wrote about how the people were crying as he was like loading these people on to the ships and how some got away. He also indicated how he had gone into villages with force. He was armed and he had the consent and the support of a brutal regime to exercise his mission. Of all the so-called specimens presented at the exhibition, the pygmies aroused the greatest curiosity among the visitors. They represented absolute savagery. Their small stature was due to a morphological adaptation to living in the equatorial rainforest. But according to Westerners, it signified that they were subhuman. They saw in the confirmation of man's descent from apes, proof of Darwin's famous theory of the missing link between man and animal. 
day after day, Otabengu was treated to the Americans' vulgarity and contempt. Otabengu's chief were probably most responsible for the horrendous experience he had in the United States because of his teeth, which were chipped to points. The very common practice in the Congo, this imagery validated his idea that he had been a cannibal, and of course he was not. This deception consummated Samuel Werner's success. He received the St. Louis Gold Medal at the closing ceremony of the exhibition, which had attracted almost 20 million visitors. After traveling to the Congo again, the explorer finally took Otto Benga to New York. His American adventure had resumed, but behind bars. It was 1906. Samuel Banner was unable to provide for his pygmy, so he loaned him to the head of the Bronx Zoo, who put him in a monkey cage. He was made to play the savage, with bow and arrow as props. In a few short years, more than 40,000 people came to see him in an enclosure he shared with a chimpanzee. His new partner with whom he performed small tricks. There's an outcry in the press, and not just the African-American press, but increasingly in the mainstream press, that this is so degrading and so contrary to what a civilized nation should be doing that Zoo authorities, together with some of the ministers um, in New York, uh, work out an arrangement to have Benga conveyed to an orphanage. Now free and in the care of a religious community, Otto Benga hoped finally to be able to integrate into his adopted country. The black ministers who took him in in 1910 gave him a Western Christian education. He went to primary school, and took English lessons. Subsequently, he was sent to Lynchburg, Virginia, where he got to know Anne Spencer, a respected African-American poet and civil rights activist. She taught him to write. Protected and supported, Otterbenga tried to live a normal life and go to work. But as a Congo pygmy, he could not adapt to the country of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, the end of the story is um, the First World War breaks out and it's clear to Benga that it's going to be very, very difficult to get back to the Congo. And we don't know exactly what precipitated his action, um, but you know, he takes his own life. He um, uh, has a gun and leaves his residence and uh, shoots himself through the heart. time of his death, 12 years after coming to the United States, he was the most famous savage in American show business. His body was never claimed by the Congo. Otabenga's story is the story of racism. The thousands of people who stared at Otabenga failed to see a human being. We can see how throughout history these men and women have been denied their humanity in order to justify the alleged superiority of white people.
set attitudes towards exhibiting people and to colonial operations. The two great powers, Britain and France, chose out of economic and military opportunism to enroll people from their colonies. They now believe they can be civilized and useful if they can be kept under supervision. Yesterday's savages were today's brave soldiers or indigenous workers. In the eyes of the countries they fight for, they are now fighting an even more primitive savage, the Germans. After victory was achieved, Afro-Caribbean, Hindu, African-American, Kanak, African and Asian soldiers from the French and the Allied armies paraded on the Champs-Élysées to the cheers of the crowds. The human exhibitions after 1918 are different. Now they are no longer savages. Of course, they remain natives and are not our equals, but they no longer live in darkness. They are on the road to civilization and are portrayed as being at the service of the great colonial nations. The pacification of these territories is staged with the help of folklore, exoticism, even eroticism. The result is a world that only functions due to the domination of the West. The message remains the same. We are the masters, and they are the natives. Marius Calouis was 21 when he agreed to leave his new Caledonian homeland to travel to Paris with a hundred fellow Canaks. It was 1931. He trusted the French official who suggested he and the others present their Canac culture at the colonial exhibition in Paris. They were to return in eight months. Some 100 people agreed to undertake the journey, including teachers, students, customs officers, waiters, and seamen. Little did they know that they would become the tragic heroes of one of the greatest humiliations in French history. In the Jardin d'Acclimatation, Marius was told he could not leave his enclosure unaccompanied to rest or pray. None of the promises made were kept. He had been tripped. It was as if he had returned to the 19th century. It was terrible. They had to perform from morning till night. The women had to breastfeed in public. They had to build dugouts and dance all day. They were slaves. I think that violates human dignity, even though nobody died. People should not treat other people like that. Some of the troupe went to Germany, while twice a week the others performed at the Colonial Exhibition in Paris. The organizers exhibited them as natives from New Caledonia, as part of the colony's official presentation. Unlike in the Jardin d'Acclimatation, they were not presented as savages, but as bold natives of the empire. France 
events wished to showcase the scope of an empire which was at its peak with a population of 100 million and an area twice that of the Roman Empire. The colonial exhibition was two to three times the size of Disneyland in Paris, and it took place not outside, but in the centre of Paris, in former workers' districts that had been completely redesigned. At that time, cinema was still in its infancy. Sound film had just been invented, and here an entire colonial empire was now being recreated. It was like Hollywood. The exhibition was inaugurated by the President Gaston Dumer and Marshal Loyauté, joined by the Under Secretary of State for the Colonies, Blaise Diane. Just a few months, Sous-question de sécurité publique, monsieur dit que vous mettez un mettre pour la sécurité. Est-ce que monsieur n'a pas arrivé à des bandits, des armées bandits, des matelas gangueux Est-ce que c'est ça À ce niveau de l'action publique sur la mise en mouvement, tel entrée en fonction du pouvoir de transition, le pouvoir de transition, ça a débuté l'entrée en fonction. Eh bien, monsieur parle de l'action publique contre des individus présumés complices dans les différents actes de spoliation des fonds publics, de dilapidation des fonds spécialement le fronts. being exhibited in Germany also started rebelling and were less and less willing to play the game. The protests prompted the Minister of Colonies to order the Jardin de Communication to close the exhibition and to bring back part of the troop in Germany at Hagenbeck. At stake was the honour of the French Republic, which could not be seen to be condoning such productions. The authorities decided to repatriate the troop. The Canucks arrived home in July 1932. Marius Calloway did not wish to return. He saw his future in France and refused to board the ship in Marseille and returned to the woman he loved. She was French. Her name was Juliette Gabrielle Favre and meeting her was the only good luck he'd had in France. A few weeks later, the couple married in Bordeaux. What is surprising is that the marriage contract here says the future wife wishes to keep her French nationality. Because Canucks were considered to be foreigners, even though they came from a French colony. Sylvette was born one year later. She was only a few months old when Marius died in a tram accident. Her family always hid the fact that her father was a Canuck. Only in her old age did she discover her origins, thanks to a journalist friend. 
Sylvette has returned to the zoological gardens where her father was exhibited. It's a French, but also a New Caledonian story. I'm proud because it was my father, but the way he was treated is shocking. right now. More than a dozen cars were broken into overnight in Maryland Heights. This happened just before 2.30 this morning. Four cars were hit at the Elmwood Hotel. Then less than a mile away, four more cars broken into at the Homewood Suites. All of those cars had their back passenger windows smashed out. Then in the garage area of the Hollywood Casino, six cars broken into. Not clear just yet if those break-ins are connected. Real Stories Tapes of True Crime is your new true crime podcast fix. In our first season, we'll explore suspicious deaths at a California hospital and a skydiver landing dead on a suburban driveway with a bag containing guns, drugs, and night vision goggles. To join our investigation, search and subscribe to Real Stories Tapes True Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.
just woke up. It's the first day of seeing you here and I have to get ready. So, it's about 6, 11. So it's 10 right now. And I have to get dressed. That's how I get back for the day. have to be my own friend. I don't need anybody to tell me to take things seriously. Loneliness is one of my worst enemies and I wouldn't wish it not even to any enemy. teacher's house whenever I needed somewhere to sleep or to eat or whatever I needed she was there for me. Mr. Barrow? Yeah. Do you have like a Spanish English dictionary? Yeah. What I like the most about him is I felt the anger that he felt on the way. Dad had this huge problem with immigration and he had to leave. My mom didn't marry pretty quick. And so I felt really betrayed by them. So I could connect that with him with. Mr. Barrow introduced me to Shakespeare. She was life changing for me. I had to be off of school for three months, so I failed most of my classes. I need to get back on track so I could be better in the future. I am the worst grocery shopper ever. What about lasagna? Could you eat lasagna? Maja, what is in the pot with the ramen noodles? Other noodles? Yeah, yeah. She's making cake and she's making noodles. Fuck winter. <laughs> this film is about a killer. A faceless killer that lurks and strikes at random. A killer many of us will have to face. The pictures are the diseased brain of a 57-year-old man. A man called
1947, and a young boy enjoys a rare holiday with his family. His name, Malcolm Poynton. From an early age, Malcolm determined not to follow the trade of his father and family. Work in the messy potteries of Stoke was not for him. For Malcolm, there were dreams and another use for his hands. The first class honours in music led to his composing, to lecturing, and for a time to the BBC. <laughs> in today's program, you'll hear lots of instruments which make music all by themselves. We'll call them music machines. Have you ever heard a sound like this before? photograph was taken in 1992, he wrote, very difficult to concentrate, memory is bad, Barbara gets exasperated with me and often I don't know why, there is a silent physical buzzing in my head, is it depression or something worse? Hospital, Cambridge. And it's here that Malcolm and Barbara, in December 1995, agreed to my making a documentary of his illness. The doctor's diagnosis is probable Alzheimer's. The illness is one that ends in death, a journey of which the three of us have no experience, over a route that will take us many years to complete. Friday, 
545. Very strong, vivid attack of the vision. Don't tell anyone. Okay. trees in the garden. Just weeping uncontrollably. And I discovered that he had found the book. And he said, this is what I've got, isn't it? I remember feeling totally numb with Alzheimer's. And the word just rang round and round through my head, like a, like a bell, almost like a death sentence. people a day develop dementia, usually old people, but when Malcolm was told, he was only 51. Bowel movements slimy, smell different than before the attack, very forgetful, lacking in confidence, the vision has reappeared, tendency to panic. Malcolm had a number of problems with to change some tyres and got thoroughly lost and came back in a total panic. The words total panic should be considered something of an understatement. A policeman had picked Markham up for driving down the M11 the wrong way. On the surface he looks as though he's the same person but you know inside that there's something that's eating him away and depriving me of the person that I knew and loved. Tell me about your life with Barbara. Do you remember where you met her? We came from uh, <clears throat> Stoke on Trent. Mm -hmm. So we came from. Do you remember your mum and dad? Being there? I do. Yeah. Oh. I thought was not. It's another the person who who uh, is a bit of a uh, uh, country. Isn't really right. <laughs> you know, and I'm from the door. 
saying with a smile that I was wicked. I kissed her. She is a very passionate girl.
मैनेजर नहीं रह is just one example. Hundreds of thousands of others are at great risk every day on the streets of Pakistan. Many of those working on behalf of the children have accused Pakistani politicians of turning a blind eye to the plight of those abused. But perhaps, at last, a champion may be emerging on their behalf. It's, it's really shameful for us that we have not really been able to protect them. So we will have a task force specifically to, to get rid of this, uh, this crime. Uh, I'm going to have a meeting in a week's time and I will bring this on. Um, and it would help if your film comes out because we will use that film and then uh, we'll take action. That action cannot come soon enough. Back in the shower, Afzal has received a call. Another little boy has turned up on the streets near the bus station. Thank you so much. Thank you.
where do you live? In your bedroom soon, I hope. <laughs> nice. Wink, wink. Bizu. Mwah. If you're an investor, you probably already know that Tesla's skyrocketing share price has created an army of millionaires, self-named Teslanaires. But the cold hard truth about Tesla yeah, yeah. is that it makes a mere fraction of the vehicles of its more established rivals. In fact, there's a little-known Canadian company that has produced three times the number of vehicles as Tesla, yet its stock trades for roughly 25 times less. This disruptive Canadian company is even rumored to be working on Apple's top-secret Apple card. But despite all of that, you've probably never even heard of this company. We're convinced this under-the-radar Canadian stock that's less than 5% of the size of Tesla could be one of the best growth stocks of 2021 and beyond. And since the average recommendation in Stock Advisor Canada is more than tripling the market, we should know. This is your chance to get in early on what could prove to be a very special investment recommendation. This could even be your second chance at Tesla-like returns. Don't miss out. Simply click the button to get more details about this little-known company and Stock Advisor Canada. to Azure and realize that data management can be costly, complex, and risky. Not to worry. NetApp's Cloud Volumes on Tap is the smart way to manage your SaaS application data on Azure. Stay protected, lower infrastructure costs, accelerate development, and automate complex workflows. Simply deploy Cloud Volumes on Tap for out-of-the-box enterprise-grade protection against disk failures, human error, data corruption, cyber threats, outages, and natural disasters. You don't need to worry if your data is safe on another company's infrastructure because you control your own safety mechanisms. If an employee accidentally deletes all your data, have no fear. Simply restore the backup that Cloud Volumes on tap automatically created. When building your cloud environment on Azure, the cost of storing multiple copies of your data
for testing, staging, backup, and DR. They quickly add up as data keeps growing. But Cloud Volume's ONTAP's storage efficiency features lets you save time and money. Say your application team needs three additional copies of the 100 terabytes production data for developing, testing, and staging. You could spend the next four days copying 300 terabytes while paying for extra storage. Or you could use Cloud Volume's ONTAP to instantly create three clones without paying for extra capacity. Easy decision. What's more, Cloud Volume's ONTAP's flexible infrastructure and automation capabilities allows apps to be developed, updated, and released in shorter DevOps cycles. SaaS apps often have several dev teams with their own requirements, deadlines, and tools. Forgo creating time-consuming IT tickets by using built-in environment planning tools, shortcuts, and automation. Empower developers to fulfill their own workflows by utilizing integration with automation and infrastructure as code tools. Run execute hundreds of commands, or set up new environments with the click of a button. DevOps teams can create working data environments that each team can independently operate and modify. Meet your deadlines by releasing new application features in just a day or two. Cloud Volumes on Tap runs natively on Azure, so don't sacrifice reliability for agility or cost for performance. Visit cloud.netapp.com now to get started. This meadow is home to countless insects, seemingly unassuming creatures that are far mightier than meets the eye. In fact, insects were the first flying animals. For some 400 million years, they've been a key part of the Earth's ecosystem. A butterfly or a beautiful wild bee brings us so much joy. They're part of our culture and nature and of the beauty that lifts our spirits. Yo, why they like trying to slide into my fucking snap? Like, I want you in my snap, bitch. Exploitation and agriculture and constant push for more, stripping our fields down to the very last seed, leaving nothing for animals. It's insanity, and sometimes it just makes me furious. If we wait another 15 years, insects will be gone forever. It's like climate change. We're at the point where we need to take action in a very serious way. Enorm 
mealworms make for a hearty breakfast. And the first guests are already here. We begin our investigation into the disappearance of insects with a visit to an expert on birds. The world of insects and of birds are closely intertwined. Peter Berthold is one of Germany's leading bird experts and the former director of the Radolfzell Ornithological Research Unit at the Max Planck Institute. For me, being out in nature is as important as breathing, as food and drink. When I stay in a miserable hotel and get served eggs that comes from God knows where, I notice what I'm missing. When I wake up in the morning and feel strong and clear-headed, I go to my chickens, and I know it's going to be a good day. That's all I need to enjoy life. That's all I need to be happy. Time to dig in. This is a true paradise, at least nowadays. In the past, this would have been completely ordinary. Back then, every village from Garmisch to Flensburg would have looked like this. Just about every household would have kept chickens, which they'd feed out in the yard. The chickens would have been joined by sparrows, titmice, redstarts, blackbirds, starlings. Because of all those small farms, you saw birds all across Germany, from the northern coast to the Alps. Nowadays, you have to make a special effort to create this. So where are the birds? They're in heaven, bird heaven. Young hatchlings feed on insects brought to them by their parents. And insects are an increasingly short supply nowadays. Peter Berthold has been observing this decline for decades. When he first began working at the institute in the 1970s, the researchers used to catch insects to feed the birds. Over the years, the number of insects dwindled. Today, there are hardly any. Since 1800, our bird populations have declined by about 80%. Across species, migratory and resident birds, birds that eat insects and those that eat grains and seeds. And one major reason is loss of habitat and breeding grounds. Due to overbuilding, habitat destruction, the filling in of ponds. But another important factor is the loss of food, both the loss of seeds and grains, and the loss of insects which birds feed on. Peter Berthold often sits at his window and documents the stark decline in bird populations. In the past, Wild herbs used to grow amidst the wheat fields. Their seeds helped nourish birds. But those days are long gone. Peter Berthold says modern farming practices are to blame. Today's farms are too efficient, too antiseptic in their monocultures, he says. That's why he's created his own kingdom, a lush meadow orchard interspersed with grasses and wild plants that are a paradise for insects. All of those different weeds and plants used to be home to hundreds and thousands of insect species. They're gone now too. All of those monoculture fields, planted with nothing but corn, wheat, barley, oats, 
When it comes to the food that birds need, they're no better than a desert. That also holds true when it comes to the gardens people plant nowadays. There's nothing left for birds to eat. It's the loss of habitat and of food that have caused this dramatic population decline. Both birds and insects have suffered. They are drawn to the few wild meadows that are left in Germany, like here in the far west of the country. This lush meadow grows naturally, without any kind of fertilizer. It's home to more than 100 species of plant and insect. A modern farm has little to offer by comparison. Can we change how we farm to help protect and sustain insect populations? We pay a visit to the University of Freiburg. Here at the Institute for Nature Conservation and Landscape Ecology, Alexandra Maria Klein is investigating the role of insects in agricultural landscapes. on the flagellum to determine whether a bee is male or female. We can see whether it's gathered pollen. We examine the color of the pollen, which is really fascinating, to figure out what kind it is. Alexandra Maria Klein is studying how to preserve the diversity of plants and animals in our modern cultivated landscapes. Insects are crucial in preserving that biodiversity. Yes, it's a problem for me. I depend on nature and we need insects. And the birds need them too. What would happen if insects were to die off completely? If the bees were to disappear? Alexandra Maria Klein is hoping to find out more with an ingenious experiment. that's all we need. They're going to wrap several apple trees. These water pipes will serve as scaffolding for the net. 
It's a bit improvised, sure, but we want this to be quick and easy. Next comes the net. It will keep insects away from the blossoms on this small group of trees. The trees already have netting on them to protect them from hail. Now they're getting another canopy. can get in, but the wind will still be able to transport pollen through the net. Apple blossoms can be pollinated by the wind as well as by insects. So what's this red sign for? This is where we don't want any bees. What about over here? This is where we want the bees to pollinate. We'll mark it with yellow for honeybees. And this is where we'll pollinate by hand. We'll pollinate every single blossom here. So this will mark with green. So here, humans will do the work of pollination. If we end up with more apples here, high quality apples, that would mean that there aren't enough bees at Lake Constance. The experiment is designed to see whether hand pollination is more successful than what nature can offer. Alexandra Maria Klein is expecting that the covered trees will yield fewer apples. The marshals aren't so sure. I always say if we see one bee per tree, that's enough. I'm happy to take part in this experiment to see how the bees are doing. But to be honest, I think we can get apples without bees. So, is he right? Time will tell. A much larger experiment is underway in the Eiffel region of Western Germany. Eight research institutes have joined forces here to investigate what's behind the insect die-off. Researchers from Krefeld, who have conducted a number of important studies, are also here. One of them is Martin Zorg. Two years ago, he published the results of a long-term study of some protected areas in Germany, which found a 75% decline in flying insect biomass over 27 years. The alarming results made headlines around the world. Zorg is setting up a number of traps along a line extending from a conventionally farmed field into a nature preserve. The researchers want to find out if any changes are taking place along this line. What is happening to insects in the zone of contact separating the nature preserve from the farmland? investigating the impact of modern agricultural methods, including the use of pesticides and fertilizers, on the diversity of plant and animal life in nearby protected areas. 
They're measuring, catching, and examining everything they can get their hands on. Insects that fly, bugs that crawl, vegetation, birds, and even bats. These are traps for ground-dwelling insects, like beetles. You put a pipe into the ground. This is a funnel that the insects can crawl into. They then fall into the alcohol, which preserves them for the DNA analysis we'll carry out later. I'll put this right here and arrange it so that the beetles will crawl on it. So what kinds of results are they expecting to find? We're trying to narrow down what factors are responsible for the decline in insect populations. With that information, we can make evidence-based recommendations and advise policymakers. We also want to work with farmers to develop adaptations that will allow the farms to thrive, but also provide more scope for biodiversity. We accompany Martin Sorg to Krefeld. He's bringing a few more samples with him for analysis. He's already examined tens of thousands of similar samples. In the field of entomology, we're dealing with an immense diversity of insect species. We know that there are well over 33,000 species of insect in Germany. What we've found is that most of these species are suffering from a serious population decline. The Krefeld researchers have been able to document these changes over decades. They have been systematically catching, counting, and recording insect populations for years, always using the same methods. This makes their data especially reliable. They have also amassed a unique trove of samples, which they keep in storage. For many years, the work of entomologists wasn't taken all that seriously. Their painstaking research and documentation seemed old-fashioned. Times have changed, and now entomologists are in high demand. The researchers first take a look at the catch before they begin counting and classifying. Martin Zorg suspects that at least 1,400 species have already vanished. Once a species has died out in a particular region, it can't be reintroduced. Each species fills a particular niche in an ecosystem that can't be replicated. Martin Zorg says the true scale of the die-off is only now becoming apparent. the Alexander Koenig Research Museum in Bonn. Livia Scheffler is analyzing samples from the Eiffel region. What insect species do they contain? The days in which each insect would be counted and classified individually are long gone. Insect taxonomists are in short supply nowadays. Lydia Scheffler says it would take decades to classify this all by hand. Today, researchers employ genetic analysis to distinguish among insect species. The computer compares the genetic results with an online database and returns the results. One of Lydia Scheffler's goals is determining what role pesticides are playing in the insect die-off.
For the genetic analysis, the insects are pulverized and suspended in a solution. The eight research institutes collaborating on the project hope to expand on the results documented by the Krefeld study. The study published by our colleagues in Krefeld seems to have opened a window that will allow us to do something to preserve species diversity. Maybe we can get politicians to listen to what we're saying. We return to Lake Constance. The apple plantation is in full bloom. Alexandra Maria Klein has brought a doctoral student with her. They're collecting pollen. These are Elster apple trees. The two biologists plan to pollinate the Elster trees by hand. But just gathering the pollen is no easy task. They have to collect the pollen when the pods are perfectly ripe. Now they go to the test area to pollinate every single blossom by hand. It takes the two of them five hours to pollinate just five trees. To pollinate every tree on the plantation by hand would cost about a million euros a year. So what kind of harvest will this yield? be the future of apple farming. Transylvania is pristine, almost untouched. Let's find a spot for our first session. It's pretty windy, so maybe down there? The team are looking forward to what they'll find. We mainly come to Romania because in a very short time we find a wide diversity of species. They're the same species we have at home, but it takes a lot longer to find them. 
Here on the hillside, each student is observing an area of about 3 by 3 meters for 30 minutes at a time. They try to catch and record all the insects they see. Sheep graze on the meadows in this part of Romania. That's also good for the insect population. find something special. A moth caterpillar, a lovely creature. It will mature into a spurge hawk moth. We can try to feed it. Look, it's starting to eat. And it's pretending to be poisonous and dangerous. It has a spike back here, and that does help scare off the birds. The diversity of the landscape is mirrored in the diversity of insect species. A landscape dotted with small fields and meadows lined with hedges will be home to many. Looking at the landscape, here's a small patch that's been mowed for the cow in the barn. Tomorrow they'll mow the patch next to it, and over there it's already grown back. So every kind of insect will find a spot here, and that's why there are so many of them. We don't have this in Germany anymore. The group goes to two more meadows. Each one. concentration and a steady hand. In a single afternoon they found an immense variety of species. Romania still has many stable biotopes, but 90% of farmland worldwide makes intensive use of Sometimes lined by a hedge or a strip of flowers, a pile of rocks. That's what we need to bring back again. Using land less efficiently would be a boon for insect life, but not for farmers. Subsidies might allow farmers to use fewer pesticides and to reduce the size of their fields. If we farm that way, then it might not be so bad if pesticides gets used once in a while. That's why it's so important to create more varied landscape. We have to draw on farmers, and they're willing to do that. They're often wonderful people with that immense trove of knowledge. We need to make them the conservationists of the future, so that they can produce food and maintain the diversity of species. A lovely vision of the future. After a day of work, the students have something special in store, a nighttime expedition.
It only has one jumping leg. A cricket called a wart biter, a species that suffered under modern agriculture. Then comes another rare find, a huge moth. There's meanwhile a consensus that pesticides have a major impact on the loss of biodiversity that we've observed in insects, birds, and other animals. We're going to have to grapple with this. Over about 30 years, we've seen reduction of biomass of some 80%. If we wait another 15 years, then insects will be gone. It's like climate change. We're at a point where we absolutely must take action now on a grand scale. Karsten Poole says that 30% of agricultural land should actually be allowed to lie fallow permanently. Given the massive insect die-off, only drastic measures can make a difference. Peter Berthold would likely agree. The ornithologist is known for speaking his mind. But he doesn't just talk, he takes action. This used to be a cornfield. With the support from the Heinz Zielmann Foundation, Peter Berthold has transformed the field into a lake burgeoning with life. In just 10 years, the 10 hectare stretch of land has been transformed into a rich and varied habitat dotted with ponds and ditches. Together with the foundation, Peter Berthold has created 100 more biotopes like this around Lake Constance. 
It's an ambitious plan. Scientists say that for it to succeed, our agricultural practices would need to become much more insect friendly. That would mean more hedges, buffer strips between fields, and a massive reduction in the use of chemicals. Even if we convince farmers to work in a much more insect friendly way, we won't necessarily succeed in replenishing insect life on a large scale. Light pollution and traffic would still be a major problem, so we'll have to wait to see. Light pollution. Our modern predilection for using artificial light to turn night into day. Is this having a larger impact on the insect population than we realize? To find out more, we pay a visit to Franz Hoka, head of the Light Pollution Working Group at the Leibniz Institute of Freshwater Ecology. He accompanies us to the Westhafelland Star Park, northeast of Berlin. Franz Hoka has been investigating the impact of artificial light on insects for many years. Light at the wrong time can wreak havoc on fragile ecosystems. Share you they find job, I be you need sight also. No just worry yourself because you feel make over one hundred and fifty thousand naira. And you have to keep in mind 
half of the Earth is dark at any one moment. And about half of all insects are nocturnal. So much of the diversity we have on Earth has adapted to darkness. Those nocturnal insects are powerfully attracted to light. They fly around the lamp until they're exhausted and can't continue. Hans Hoke has found that streetlights serve as a kind of barrier. A row of streetlights divide up the landscape much in the way that roads do. They create patches of land in which insects are trapped, and no genetic exchange takes place. Various small flies, moths, midges. Not a lot, right? No, it isn't. Compare that to these videos from the 1970s, which we found in our archive. Even in the Star Park, there doesn't seem to be much buzzing and flying around here. Hans Hoeker also says he's seen a significant reduction in insect populations. kilometers further south, children are helping preserve insect populations. The children at this daycare spend a lot of time outdoors. Today, they're planting flowering plants, sorrel, thistles, and ragged robin flowers. The children are helping create new habitats for biodiversity at the edge of an industrial region. Biodiversity has suffered enormously over the past 30 years. Insect populations have gone down by 80%. We have to do something. So five years ago, the town of Opskimunt asked, what can we do? And that's when we started planting wildflowers. A project called the Opskimunt Wildflower Summer is now underway. It features many different events and provides local people with ideas for how they can help preserve biodiversity. The community has already planted 75 meadows of wildflowers. There are also buffer strips of wildflowers, which Philip Untervega is taking a look at today. He advises communities and other groups about how to create flourishing natural landscapes. The biologist is also a passionate photographer. His photos document the beauty that thrives with sustainable farming practices. Feelings matter, bro. That's what they're doing. Okay. 
A butterfly or a beautiful wild bee brings us so much joy. They're part of our culture and nature and of the beauty that lifts our spirits. Summer has now become fall. It's harvest time at the apple plantation near Lake Constance. What are the results of the experiment? Hand pollination yielded a very large number of apples, but most are too small to be sold on the market. They'll have to be turned into apple juice. For Marcus Marshall, hmm. that's a financial loss. The low-quality apples these people. pollination have shown that it's not a viable alternative. God bless these journalists. Hand pollination is far too labor-intensive. If you want to do it right, you need a lot of experience. There's no way we can pollinate by hand anyhow. Who would even do it? Now comes the moment of truth. What happened to the trees that were completely cut off from insects? Alexandra Maria Klein is surprised. There are a few rather large apples here. There are no seeds. The bees weren't here and they didn't pollinate. No seeds also affects the apple's nutritional profile, so this would be a big change. Without bees, the quality of apples would suffer. Alexandra Maria Klein says the lack of seed would be a serious problem. The trees would not be able to reproduce. They're big with a different nutritional profile and wouldn't withstand storage, and there aren't enough of them. So we can't do without insects. I'm a major advocate for insects and birds and all of that. Not everything has died here yet at Lake Constance, and we're doing our best. We've planted hundreds of hectares of meadows with flowers, and every agricultural field around here has a buffer strip of meadowland surrounding it. We're headed in the right direction. We farmers are doing a lot for insects, but there aren't enough of us. Each and every one of us needs to start rethinking things. The experiment showed that hand pollination increases the yield by about 70%, but with a loss in quality. The trees that were covered in insect-proof nets saw 30% reduction in the harvest and no seeds. What we saw is that when bees do the pollination, we have a good harvest, many apples, and excellent quality. The bees were the best pollinators. The apple in the middle is the winner, a co-production of Marcus Marshall, his trees, and the insects. Our expedition into the world of insects is drawing to a close. What have we learned? Our roads and traffic and the heavily built environment are harmful to insect life. Light pollution is also luring untold millions of insects to their death. The biggest threat is industrial farming the spread of monocultures, and the intensive use of pesticides over decades. Much of our land has been transformed into insect-free zones, and it's still unknown what effect pesticide cocktails might be having. We need to transform our landscapes to make room for hedges, meadows, and buffer strips alongside cropland. We need farmers who are compensated for promoting biodiversity.
communities and people who restore areas where nature can flourish. And we need to understand that without insects, our own survival is also in peril. Blood this bitch. Under the radar Canadian stock that's less than 5% of the size of Tesla could be one of the best growth stocks of 2021 and beyond. And since the average recommendation in Stock Advisor Canada is more than tripling the market, we should know. This is your chance to get in early on what could prove to be a very special investment recommendation. This could even be your second chance of Tesla-like returns. Don't miss out. Simply click the button to get more details about this little-known company in Stock Advisor Canada. If you wear glasses or contacts, you must see this. An award-winning doctor reveals an astonishing, natural way to reclaim the 2020 vision you were born with in record time. Did you know? Vision problems have absolutely nothing to do with your eyes. A shocking link between the eyes and the brain was discovered by researchers in Washington. These studies show that your eyes will deteriorate with each passing year. Even if you wear glasses or lenses. And that's because 
They don't do a single thing to actually improve the way your eyes interact with the brain. This well-known doctor from Japan was forced out of his practice after he unveiled a billion-dollar secret. He wasn't supposed to know the real reason. Why do you lose your vision? And a simple trick to reverse your vision problems as you sleep no matter what your age or current condition. And it works like crazy. 